home alone. Now, everybody in this room, has. if you haven't seen Home Alone, please raise your hand. Home Alone, if you have not seen Home Alone, raise your hand. We will, we will take you outside and spank you. No, I shouldn't say spank. I got to be careful. Too many accusations going on these days for saying stuff like that. Okay, I'll just let that go. But you have to see. <laughs> Some of you faking me. You have to see Home Alone. Now, Home Alone is a classic Christmas movie. It's probably the only movie Macaulay Culkin ever starred in again. Probably didn't have to start another movie because of this movie. Home Alone's classic Christmas, Christmas movie. It's about this little boy who lives in a big house with a whole bunch of relatives, and they come over for this kind of big Christmas event where they're going to go to Paris for Christmas. Now, me, when I watched this as a kid, I was like, what kind of people can go to Paris for Christmas? I'm trying to figure out what is happening in these people's lives. I don't know anybody like that that's got it like that. I'm just saying. They go into Paris for Christmas. Balling out. So in the story, you know, Kevin's kind of stuck in the birth order where he's got some issues. He's not really happy, uh, you know, and so he's kind of acting out a little bit. He's got this older brother who's kind of a jerk, you know. He's got little kids everywhere, and it's kind of this big conflict, and they're getting ready to go, and Kevin is acting a fool because Kevin liked things a certain way. This is Kevin right here. And Kevin likes things a certain way, and because there's so many people in the house, you know, he's kind of getting pushed around. He's getting upset. There's this big scene in a movie where there's this big fiasco, and Kevin gets blamed for causing a big mess. And everybody looks at him and says hurtful, disgusting words to him. Pierce him in his soul. Look what you did, you little jerk. <laughs> Thanks, Kevin. Right? He's the butt of every joke. Right? He's got all these live trolls in front of him. Dog and Kevin. And Kevin gets mad. And he shouts out the words that no black child or brown child probably has ever said to their parents. I hate you. Because if you say that, it's going to be a funeral. Now, look, I'm not criticizing any other culture. I'm just telling you as a child, if I said I hate you to my mom, I'm just telling you, they would have been like, how do I say goodbye? It would have been over. Kevin's hot. So he runs upstairs, and his mom says, go upstairs to the attic. Now, I always start watching the movie's going to get a whooping. I'm like, ooh, she about to whoop Kevin. She about, he about to get a Christmas whooping. I hope they whoop Kevin, because he's acting a fool. Mom forgets all about whooping Kevin. In fact, she forgets all about Kevin. And the family gets up in the morning. They start rushing. Y'all know this story. Start this movie, rushing, rushing to get ready, and they leave. And there was no Eminem recording that they forgot about Dre. They completely forgot about Kevin. They got to the airport. They're on the plane. It's a big group. And Kevin makes this wish. He says, I wish I didn't have a family for Christmas. Kevin lost his mind. Kevin needs counseling. He needs to go to Sabbath school. He needs some deep healing from his family dysfunction, which is a response to his neglect. But Kevin's like, I wish I didn't have a family. And it, what happens is he wakes up and everybody is gone and he thinks that it's come true. Now, his parents are traveling and, you know, they're on the plane and they forget all about Kevin. Well, Kevin wakes up, sees the house to himself, starts to figure out, my family is gone. And Kevin starts rejoicing, 
right? He starts acting a complete fool, turning on stuff, watching stuff he ain't supposed to watch, eating stuff, what he's supposed to eat. He starts yelling, life is good. He's rebelling. Kevin is acting a fool, and life is good until something happens. There are some people walking around the neighborhood. Some people, it's a picture of it, who have been plotting to take from Kevin. There's some criminals laundering around looking for an opportunity to steal Jack, Kevin, and his family. The McAllister house is getting ready to get broken into. And so Kevin, as he's kind of living life, doing his thing, balling out, he suddenly realizes that he's in danger because these thieves are coming to break in to his house. And when the thieves... He discovers the plan of the thieves. He begins to devise this plan to try to, to, you know, to make it seem like that's somebody's home. Try to make it seem like he's not by himself. Can I, can I just, this wasn't even in my notes, but can I just say parenthetically, that's, that's exactly what happens to us when we are kind of doing things for ourselves and trying to make life for ourselves. We try to pretend like things aren't as bad as they are. And sometimes we try to pretend like we aren't as lonely as we are. I see people all over, the, all over the Instagram, you know, I don't know how they do that pose. I don't know what angle it is, you know. I'm doing good. I'm, I'm, I'm man, things are great. Reality is, it took you two hours to take that picture. Two hours. You, wait, I got to make sure I get this right. We don't want to hide, we want to hide the fact that we're lonely and we're broken and we're scared. So Kevin, eventually... These thieves figure it out. And so then, the movie kind of switches. Well, before that, that his mom is on the plane. And I love this face that she, this face, this reaction she has. She realizes, she's like, I forgot something. I forgot something. What was it? They're on the plane. And she realizes, shouts to the top of her lung, Kevin! Screams. Because she realizes that she left Kevin. Kevin is at home, thousands of miles away, vulnerable, left to his own demise, by himself. She can't protect him. She can't save him. Kevin is locked up in the house, and he's vulnerable, and he's scared, and he's in trouble. And that's the look on her face when she realizes, I left Kevin. As we look at Proverbs chapter 13, verse 12, an unlikely text for Christmas, it says something powerful. It says, a hope deferred makes the heart sick. Some of you, if I said, a loan deferred makes the heart sick, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Some of you got some student loans that are deferred. It makes you sick. We see the giving records. We know. No, I'm just playing. But... When you got a loan that's deferred, it just means that you don't have to pay it now. But eventually, you're going to have to pay it. You may have a gap now, but eventually Sally Mae is going to show up. Sally Mae wants her money. She wants it now. The Bible says a hope deferred, a hope put on pause, a hope that does not come to pass when it should makes the heart sick. 
Think about whatever you hoped for, whatever you dreamed for, whatever you're actually hoping for now. That thing that you've maybe given up on that's really never gone anywhere. The hope is just like Kevin. You're miles away. And when you wake up one day and you realize, I left Kevin. I left my hope. I left that thing that I really was hoping was going to come to pass. It was precious to me. And life got me caught up. And Kevin is somewhere locked in the attic of our mind. And as she pursues to travel miles and adversity, trying to get to Kevin. Because Kevin is in danger. I wonder if there's anybody here today that understands what I'm trying to say is that a hope deferred makes the heart sick. And perhaps in, perhaps you have a Kevin locked away in your heart. Perhaps you forgot about Kevin when you start dating him. Kevin was your dream to become a professional. Kevin was your dream to be in shape. Kevin was your dream to have great credit and move up in life. But you messed around. And dated somebody, the wrong person. And now you're set back and you gave up on Kevin. You put your life on hold. And Kevin is in the attic, locked away, and you can't get to him. Hope has a way of burning inside of us. Hope has a way of not going away. Do you realize that we talk about it all the time here? In fact, it is the core and the cause of what this church is about, to bring hope to the city. But the reality is some people's hope is still there. They've just given up on it. They've lost it. They don't know where it is. They just, they used to dream. They used to think it was going to get better. They used to not be addicted to drugs. They used to not be addicted to alcohol. They used to not be in the shape they were in. They used to didn't have felonies. They didn't have that. They didn't have three baby mamas 10 years ago. They didn't, that wasn't their plan. That wasn't their dream. But something happened and Kevin got locked away. And they're screaming. Maybe they're 65. Maybe they're 55. Maybe you're 45. And you woke up on the way to a place that you thought would be a blessing. You realize you're trapped because you forgot about Kevin. And now you got to hustle to get back. I want to take you to another story in scripture because what Christmas does is it reminds us that we always have hope. It reminds us, because the Bible says right here that a hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. What happens when what you dream comes to pass? What happens with what you are praying for comes to pass? What happens when the thing that you labored for and prayed for and expected God for, what happens when it really comes to pass? It becomes a tree of life. It gives you energy. It gives you passion. It gives you something when you know that you're planted in the right place and then you're in the place that God wants you to be. So there's a text here uh, that I want to bring you to because there's a gentleman, there's a man in the Bible that gives us a great sense of courage and, uh, and inspiration when somebody whose hope was deferred got answered by a dream. And Christmas reminds us 
that Jesus does what he says he's going to do, that God comes through with his promise. And if he can solve the issue of sin, he can solve our issue, that it may not come when we're expecting, but God is a God of making sure that dreams come true. God is a God of making sure that the plan is executed. And if there's bumps and if there's trials and if there's problems on the road, God comes through every single time. And we are reminded in the Christmas story that the Christ child came into a very difficult, adverse situation, but he was the promise of God. And if God can bring Christ through broken humanity and bring him through parents that were rejected and social outcasts, he can bring us through. So I want to take you to the book of Daniel. Ooh, I want to take you to the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 2. Now, Daniel is a very interesting person. Daniel was actually taken when he was a young child. He was taken in captivity uh, into Babylon. And this is a part of what was going to, be, going to happen because of the uh, disobedience of the people, of God's people. They had disobeyed God long enough, and God had had enough of it. And God says, well, you know what? I'm going to do something that you're not expecting. I'm going to bring in another kingdom, and that kingdom is going to take you from where you are, and I'm going to bring you into exile for a certain amount of, of years. And when that is done, I'm going to purify the land while you're there, and I'm going to restore you in it. Well, Daniel was a part of this young group. Daniel and his friends and some others were part of the nobles. So in those days, when they took over a kingdom, they pretty much just took the best and the brightest. They took the ones who could be the best and handle business. That's who they took uh, with them. And so they took Daniel and a bunch of others, and he was a young, he was a young kid, maybe about 16, 17, 18. And so the book of Daniel is about him and about how he survives different administrations, how he actually survives and makes it through. And so I want to take you to chapter 2. Because in chapter 1, we kind of get introduced to Daniel, and Daniel goes to this new place, and there's a lot of rules, and really there's a whole different culture, a whole different language. And that culture is in conflict with what he was raised to be. Now, some of us, when we were raised with a certain culture and raised with the certain things, we were taught not to eat and were taught not to do and taught not to drink. When we show up to Babylon, we're not Daniel. We are far from Daniel. We show up, we are, it's on and popping, right? What y'all got in there? Let me take some of that. Ooh, let me get a little piece of that. Let me try that. And so we get sunk into the culture that is pervasive. Well, not Daniel. And not his friends. When Daniel showed up, now look, Daniel's life is at risk here. Daniel's literally brought into the Harvard of that day. Daniel gets a full ride because they want him to learn and serve into, into, into the kingdom. So Daniel gets special treatment. They all get special treatment. They actually get the king's food. And Daniel's like, hey, um, can I just talk to you about something, professor? Yeah, I know this is our, on our meal plan, but I just got to tell you, like, I can't eat this. And they're like, do you want to die? Like, do, do, is this the day that you want to die to? Do you want this to be over with? It, you, you can do this a different way, but I'm telling you, you have to eat this. And they're like, no, we can't do it. So we see the strength of, da of Daniel and his friends, and they say, look, we'll put this to the test, right? We're going to do it our way, and we're going to show you what happens at the end of this time with our method and your method, and we'll see who's better. 
And at the end of this test, Daniel's and his friends, they show that the way they have been raised is better. Can I just tell you that real quick? That the way you've been raised, if you were raised to fear and honor the Lord, if you were told not to eat this and not to drink this and not to do this, you actually have an advantage. If you actually adhere to what you were taught, if you actually follow the wisdom that you were told, you actually have an advantage. And so these men had an advantage. And as they had an advantage, they were connected with God in an important way. Because the person that they were serving was a maniac. Maybe you've never seen anybody like this. But this person was an egotistical, money-hungry, power-hungry maniac who had been thrust into power and had discovered that he had authority and in his mind thought he could rule the whole world. He tried to take over the whole world. And what God did is God brought him a dream. Now, in the book of Daniel, uh, there's a few dreams, but there's one in the second book. And I don't have time to read the whole dream or the whole story. But Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar receives a dream that his whole administrative team can't solve. He gets a dream that his whole team can't figure out. And he's so egotistical and he's so crazy and he's such a maniac that nobody can tell him anything. And if he hears anything he doesn't like, they are, you know, outcast and really in threat of their life if they're not going to follow the plan. And so he's like, look, I got this dream. And if I don't get an answer, I'm getting ready to do something crazy. And you guys are going to see what's going to happen. Well, Daniel's working in the same branch of office and finds out, oh, there's a problem. And he seeks word that his life is in danger. And so Daniel prays to God and God gives him vision and understanding. And so verse 24 of Daniel 2, then Daniel went to see Arach, who the king had ordered to execute the wise men of Babylon. He got word that his career was getting ready to get cut short. He was not only going to get fired, he was going to get killed because the dream, the, the king was crazy and couldn't figure it out. And so Daniel says, don't kill these wise men. Take me to the king and I will tell him the meaning of his dream. Now, I want to pause there for a second because I want you to understand something. That Daniel was not there because he wanted to be there. Daniel was not there because he was like, yep, I get a chance to go and be and do this new thing. No, Daniel's home was being destroyed. Daniel was committed to his God and to his people. Daniel was in a place that was uncomfortable. Daniel was in a place that was not favorable to his God or to his choice of living. Daniel was living in the context and in the fear and working for someone who was trying to destroy him. Daniel could have been praying, get me out of this. Daniel could have been praying, God, we need you to deliver. Daniel could have been praying, we need another solution. And this idea that the wise men were getting ready to get killed could have been an answer to prayer. He might, like, yes, great, kill me because I don't want nothing to do with this. I want out. In fact, I'm already planning to get out and I'm going to take off and do my own thing. But that wasn't the plan of God. In fact, God has strategically placed Daniel in the, in the shadow of the madness of this crazy person. Okay, I'm going to try to preach this. Uh, God has strategically placed Daniel mm -hmm. 
In the shadow of the madness of a crazy person. Okay. Y'all not getting me yet. God strategically placed Daniel in the context of a person who's trying to run, I mean, ruin the world. Okay, y'all not, y'all still ain't got me yet. God placed him in a strategic place, in a strategic focus, and put him in the context of a person who was trying to destroy the rest of the world, who is egotistical, who is crazy, who is a maniac, and God put Daniel in proximity of a person who felt he was running the world. Y'all ain't going to let me preach, but I'm going to preach anyway. So Daniel could have got out. And by all circumstances, Daniel could have been praying for deliverance. But his hope was deferred. His hope was put on pause. Instead, God sends a dream. Now, here's what the dream said. Here's what the dream said. Daniel begins to break this down. He tells him, look, take me to the king. I'm going to break this down. The king says, Daniel, can you tell me what this dream means? This is verse 26. Daniel says, look, nobody can do this. This is impossible. Nobody in the team can interpret the dream, but God can interpret the dream. First thing you got to understand is when you're in a place where your hope has been deferred, you got to give God the credit. You have to give God the credit because you have no idea what he's getting ready to do. You have no idea how on your behalf God is getting ready to work. He gave him the credit. And he begins to tell him, look, I'm, because you know how it is sometimes. We like to take credit for stuff we didn't do, right? Like, you know how it is. I, I know it all the time. We be in, you be in prayer meeting or something, and somebody's like, oh, uh, I just need you to pray. Like, I need a new car. And I'm, you know, I just, can you come, you know, God needs to come through. We're like, all right, we pray for you. And you're like, oh, Lord Jesus, pray for my credit. You know, they go, I need a new car. You know, I need to do this. And they're praying. And, oh, God, please come through. And then God blesses them with the car. And then somebody asks them, man, that's a nice car. And they're like, oh, you know, you know, I just got a sale. You know, one of my boys hooked me up. You know, you know, I'm just trying to do the best I can. Like, Really? You were just praying for the car and begging God to help you out. Now it's like, yeah, you know, I just, you know, we like to take the credit. Well, God was not letting Daniel take the credit, and Daniel didn't want to take the credit. So he begins to explain to him, and now, here in verse 31, he begins to explain the dream. He says, Your Majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was frightening. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was of fine gold. Its chest and arm were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, okay, so let me stop there. So he sees this image, and I won't go into all the, the breakdown of it, but what Daniel begins to break down later in this particular chapter is what this dream means. And so what Nebuchadnezzar saw was a statue that was built. And I was going to bring a picture of it, but I didn't want to spend too much time on it because I knew myself I'd try to break it all down, but I didn't want to do that. But the statue represented something much deeper than what the king thought. It represented that one day soon his king was going to end, kingdom was going to end. It represented the transition of power that not only he would experience, but it was prophetic until the end of time. And as he begins to unpack this image, Nebuchadnezzar begins to see 
that one day his kingdom was going to end. And Daniel now, as he's beginning to explain this dream, begins to see something that he didn't see before. First, he began to see that God was up to something and that God was strategically allowing Nebuchadnezzar to reign at the time he was reigning. Let me say that again. God was strategically letting him reign at the time he was reigning. Okay. God set it up on purpose that this king would be doing what he was doing because God was setting up something else. And if anybody is afraid of what's happening in this nation, if anybody is afraid of what's happening in this world, can I just encourage you that God is the one who sets up kingdoms and God tears them down, that eventually somebody is going to have to step down and God is always in control. He's always in control. Even when you like who's elected and when you don't like who's elected. God is in control. And so he sees from this dream uh, back here in verse 34. He says, as you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of the iron and clay smashed them into bits. The whole structure was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like a chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the earth. Now, what Nebuchadnezzar doesn't get the meaning of the dream yet. He doesn't understand what's happening. But what is happening is God is restoring hope, not only for Daniel, but for God's people. He is saying to them, you may want to get out of this, but I am fulfilling a dream that is going to bring you a tree of life. I am doing something. In the spirit that one day soon, you may not see it, but I want you to believe and understand that I am the one who's in control. And kingdoms may rise and kingdoms will fall, but at the end, there's going to be a stone not cut by human hands that is going to crush the system of power and when it he does he is going to bring tumbling to the ground every power every stronghold every kingdom everything that exalts itself above God and is going to show that his kingdom his power will fill the earth it's prophetic language for the coming kingdom of Jesus it is prophetic language of the power of God in the personhood and the kingship and the priestship of a ministry of Jesus Christ. Later down in the verse, uh, where are we at? Verse, um, I wanted to show you verse 44. Verse 44, if you can bring it down there. After he begins explaining all these things and what they mean, Verse 44, it says, during the reign of those kings, this is the last kingdom. During the reign of those kings, the king, God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness 
and it will stand forever. This is the, that is the meaning of the rock cut from the mountain, not by human hands, that crushes, crushed to pieces the statue of iron, bronze, clay, silver, and gold. The great God was shown showing the king what will happen in the future. The dream is true, and its meaning is certain. So Daniel tells the king that this stone is going to come. It's going to destroy all of the kingdoms. And, it's, and when that kingdom comes, it will never be destroyed. It will never be conquered. Here's my question, Bible students. First question. Who is this stone that is cut not by human hands? Anybody, anybody got a guess? Anybody? Don't be afraid. I, I want to see a hand up. I want to... Somebody put a hand up. I'm going to call on you. Anybody know the answer to this? Okay, what is the answer? It is Jesus Christ. Come on, give it up for my brother. He was brave. He was brave. He was going, he, he was, he was going to be in big trouble if he got it wrong. I, <laughs> it's Jesus Christ. Here's my second question. Has the stone come and destroyed the kingdoms? He says... Now I won't point him out. I was messed up. Some, <laughs> I didn't mean to do that. He said, no. Someone says no. This is, a good, this is a good question, isn't it? When has those kingdoms been certain? Now, some of you are saying, well, yeah, well, this world, obviously, this is the end. This is kind of the end of the world thing, right? Like all the kingdoms, you know, we're still here when Jesus returns at the second coming of Jesus is when the stone comes. Is that what most of you would agree with? Most of you would agree with that? Nobody want to raise their hand now, huh? <laughs> most of you would kind of agree with that? I think that's a great, I think in a lot of ways that's true. But I think in a lot of ways it's not. And I'm going to tell you why. I didn't put this verse up, but most of you have heard me talk about this all the time. What was the message of Jesus? When Jesus came, what was his message? When Jesus came, when he began his ministry, what was his message? What was his main message? I'll give you a clue. He started off with repent, right? It started off with repent. What was the rest of that message? Come on, Bible students. No, it wasn't be baptized. For the kingdom of God is near. It's not talking about chronos. Like, it's not saying... The kingdom of God is almost here. It's saying the kingdom, it's not talking about time when it says near. It's talking about proximity. That the kingdom of God is close. And if you're listening in the spirit, Jesus was saying the kingdom of God is here. Because Jesus, 
as Colossians 1, 17 uh, says, because I was uh, looking at this verse earlier, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. That when Jesus showed up, he showed up as the representative of heaven. He showed up as the solution to the problem. So that's why the enemy tried to kill Jesus so bad before he was born. Because the moment Jesus came into the earth as a human child, it began the second phase of our redemption. And the moment that Jesus was born meant the kingdom had come. Y'all not feeling me yet. When, when, when Jesus came, it meant that the stone had cracked the toe of the statue and that the statue was crumbling to the ground because Jesus said the kingdom that will never be demolished, that will never be taken away, that will never be destroyed, that will stand forever, the kingdom of God is here. And so every king, every principality, every mindset everything has been destroyed because the king has showed up yes when jesus comes there's going to be a great victory there's going to be a great celebration yes sin will be destroyed but i'm trying to tell you that god has already brought the kingdom and like that bible text says back in the proverbs if you can bring that back up that the um the hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a dream fulfilled is a tree of life. And tucked into the dream, Daniel, was a message to you that one of these days the King of Kings is going to come. The Lord of Lords is kind to come, and he's going to destroy everything that sets itself above God. And the kingdom of heaven is here. Can I just preach it like I feel it? That we don't have to be afraid. We don't have to give up hope because Jesus in the flesh, Jesus in the flesh shows us that the kingdom of heaven is here. Think about it. His death as life in his death and his resurrection, there's nothing else to be done except for him to return. The price has been paid. Let me put it like this. There is nothing the enemy can do to stop God's plan. If he was going to stop God's plan, he should have killed Jesus. If he was going to pause the effort of heaven, he should have killed Jesus. But our Bible tells us, and we believe, that Satan couldn't kill Jesus. He couldn't kill him when he was born. And he couldn't kill him as a grown man. Don't, don't listen or believe the lie that the devil killed Jesus. He never killed Jesus. I know there's a song that said he was murdered on the tree. I forgot what song it is. Sing it all the time. But I would argue very strongly that that is theologically incorrect. That is, it's incorrect. Jesus was not murdered. The Bible says Jesus laid down his life. And Jesus is so bad, he's like, nobody. Let me, let me just set this straight. Let me, just, let me just show you this thug life tatted on my chest. Like, nobody kills me. Nobody destroys me. I lay my life down when I'm ready to. And what he says is, and I'll pick it up again when I'm ready. 
Jesus came as a child. And Christmas is a time to remember the hope that we have. That that stone that Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar about has come. And that same stone is coming again to put the final blow. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the man. Nebuchadnezzar was running the world. But guess what? Where's Nebuchadnezzar? Anybody seen him? Somebody show me his grave. Somebody show me his statue. Somebody show me his wealth. Somebody show me where he was. There are people who argue, I can say the same thing about Jesus. Where is his grave? Where is his statue? Where is his kingdom? And I would boldly declare, you can look in my heart. I would boldly declare, you can look at my life. I would boldly declare, you can look at this church because you are looking at people who have hope. You are looking at people who are in recovery because whatever they dreamed and whatever they lost and whatever they still wanted, when you find purpose and peace in Christ, it begins to renew your heart. It begins to renew your spirit. You begin to walk differently. You begin to look at things differently. You begin to look at the news and say, you know what? I know this is happening, but so what? Because God's mission, I'm in a kingdom that will never fail. I serve a God that will always succeed. I serve a God whose mission will be successful. You will never destroy the church. You will never kill the church. The church will never die. The church will never go away because his power is present in his body. And as long as we are connected to the body of Christ, we've got power. I wonder if anybody in here can celebrate the fact that we have power in Christ. It's not over. There's no reason to give up. That God is with us. Who can be against us? So mom, the movie... Is racing, racing to find Kevin. Kevin at the same time is battling all these enemies. He's got haters. He's got people trying to destroy him and take him. People trying to break into the house. And Kevin's scared and he don't know what to do. Nobody can help him. And then finally, Kevin in the movie. Spirit of God begins to flood him. He, Spirit of God comes upon Kevin in the midnight hour. Says, Kevin, you got to get up off your bed. Kevin, why are you standing here weeping? Kevin, run to the house of God. Throw yourself at the altar and begin to pray. As Devin runs into the house of God, he there finds a man that he thought was his enemy. Y'all didn't know the gospel was in home alone. He, he found this old man that everybody thought was a killer in the neighborhood. But, but as, the, as, as Kevin was praying and reaching out to God, this man was there and he was struggling with his own temptation, his own sin. And he was struggling with his issue with his family. And, and Kevin, the prophet, began to speak to the man and began to tell the man, why don't you just forgive he began to tell the man, why don't you reach out and build the family and restore the family and begin to speak 
to the daughter that you're disconnected, the granddaughter you're disconnected from. Y'all, y'all got to watch this movie. There's something spiritual about it all along. And as Kevin begins to minister to this old man, Kevin begins to realize that he wants to protect his home. Kevin realizes that he wants to keep what he has. And his prayer is that, can you reunite me with my family? He begins to repent and fall on his knees. This is my version of the movie, y'all. I'm sorry. He begins to fall on his knees. And he begins to say, God, bring my family back to me. And then Kevin goes home. And he stands in the doorway. And he bows his head on his macaroni and cheese. And he says, no weapon. This is my version of it. Sometimes. Formed against me shall prosper. And the enemies of Kevin begin to come unto him. And he begins to fight them off. And then the same man that he was scared of, that he met in church, turned around and saved his life. And as he saved his life, Kevin is there and he's praying. He goes to sleep and he wakes up and it's Christmas morning. And he opens the door. Unbeknownst to him, his mother has traveled miles and miles and miles and miles. Shows up. Kevin opens the door or comes downstairs and there's his mom. There's the scene in the movie. He embraces his mother and they are rekindled and restored. Can I just tell you, I love this movie and the next time you watch this movie, I want you to see Kevin. But I want you to see Kevin as your dream. I want you to see Kevin as the thing you're hoping for. I want you to see Kevin as the relationship that needs to be restored. I want you to see Kevin as the degree that you still need to earn. I want you to see Kevin as the business idea that you have yet to put in practice. I want you to see Kevin as the thing that you put on the back burner, the thing that has made you sick for 10 years, 15 years, the thing that you've given up on. I want you to see him embracing his mother. And in that embrace, I want you to see that it's Jesus who brings things back together again. And that you might be sick, you might be discouraged, you might be is broken but that tree of life that comes in the dream that comes in the promise that Jesus will do what he said he will do and he will bring it all back together some of you have given up you've given up on a lot you've just thought you know what this is going to be what it is this just is what it is I tell you what can I tell you as a person who's found his hope who has found his restoration, that I'm telling you, it's so sweet when you surrender to God's will. There are days sometimes that as a pastor, it's so easy to try to measure yourself in success. Well, there's a good week and there's a bad week. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of people. There's a good sermon and there's a bad sermon. And you, you try to, you're tempted to try to evaluate yourself by what you see and what you experience. But can I tell you, I've been delivered of that. Can I tell you, I just, I'm free because I know that when I stand up here and when I do what I'm supposed to do, that I'm a part of the kingdom that won't end. And it would be my greatest testimony to have led a few and everybody make it than to have many and a few make it. I'll stick with the few sheep. 
I'll stick with the, with the group who sees and are compelled. And I'll stick with people who get their dreams back, who get their hope back. Because hope spreads. And you can bring hope to a city when you've got hope in your heart. You can bring hope to a city when you've got hope in your soul. You can share hope to people when you've got hope for yourself. So I want to pray a prayer of hope today. I just want you to do something different. Stand to your feet with me.